I mean, it, it kind of feels like that because it's it's so bad that I mean maybe the only way up is up from here. So yeah, maybe it, it really it's like eighty dollar ETH, right? right? It literally cannot be worse. Bankless Nation, it is Friday, which means it is time for the Bankless Friday weekly roll-up. So grab your coffee because we're going to cover all of the weekly news in crypto with a little extra help today. Coming in from Australia, we got Anthony Sazano, substitute teaching for Ryan Sean Adams today. Anthony, thank you for tapping in once again. I appreciate you. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well and always happy to tap in when Ryan's getting a, a well-needed service and recharge. Yeah, so some uh, some software updates, some some tinkering, you know, you know the deal. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It was a very big week in crypto this week, Anthony, as I'm sure you know. Gary Gensler declares mm -hmm. war on crypto. Uh, a promising draft of a crypto bill. Um, Optimism Bedrock comes in. Uh, Arbitrum runs, runs out of gas. Uh, and a uh, cohort of interesting Ethereum proposals. So I think we're going to get into all of the news and more. Uh, and let's go and get started right into the prices this week. So Anthony, in the week that Gary Gensler declares war on crypto... We dumped a little bit, but then we recovered. Uh, Bitcoin down 1.8% on the week. Ether down just 1% on the week. What, what would you make of the price action this week? Because look at this big dip where everything like dumps, but then like the Coinbase suit comes out and everything just recovers. So what's your take on the markets this week? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting to see this because this confirms a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, talking points that I've been uh, bringing up on my own show lately. And that's this concept of a time-based capitulation in the market where essentially we already had the price-based capitulation last year where things kind of bottomed out. Everything blew up. You know, everyone's leverage blew up. We had the mass deleveraging event. All the tourists kind of went away and ha haven't come back. And what we see now is literally just these opportunistic short-term moves where day traders take advantage of any volatility that they can have because they, they're starved for it right now. And obviously, big news events like the SEC suing two of the biggest crypto exchanges is, is going to cause some volatility, but it really didn't cause much. Uh, it, it really kind of, as you said, it went down a bit and then it went straight back up really because I think the market is definitely um, exhausted right now It and the, the long no, no longer long-term investors are going to be selling for this. And anyone who sold was just a trader. And the traders are obviously selling, shorting, then they're going to close their positions and, and it comes back up. So I, I really think this is just the clearest signal that I've seen yet that we're in firmly in that time-based capitulation where essentially the things just go sideways for a while uh, until interest just slowly, slowly comes back and, and we start going up again eventually and start a new bull market. So yeah, it's actually quite, quite interesting, the signal that this sends that I think may have escaped a lot of people, especially people who maybe this is their first crypto cycle. But these are the best signals to be paying attention to because this is the market literally telling you, hey, like I, I don't want to go down because I've already priced all of this in. And like literally it's just traders trying to, to, to mess with the chart basically. <laughs> yeah, usually when events like this happen, people ascribe price movements retroactively. But I think what you're saying and what I totally agree with is that the headline SEC sues Coinbase and SEC sues Binance is such a big, scary, high signal to the market's headline. And so we can actually look at the price movements and say like, this happened because of that. And we can look at the price movements and see like, well, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't, it mm. went down a little bit, but what you're saying is it was just the traders. Like everyone who's buying and taking exposure to crypto is unfazed by this and since the market didn't really go down. You, you're saying that, man, we are in a place where anyone who's was going to sell has already sold. 
and anyone who's left is just in it for the long haul. So we're in that phase between like we're not we don't have a bull market. We have nothing to be excited about, but we have no further reasons to be bearish. And so we're just mm -hmm. crabbing. We're just neutral. Yeah, yeah, and I would wager most, if not pretty much all the, the people that are in this still right now and are long-term investors, they're probably not going to change their mind here. They're not probably not going to stop buying crypto. They're probably not going to sell what they have. Uh, you know, there are certain people I would assume that would be maybe selling some if they needed to take some risk off the table or maybe kind of uh, changing their, their thesis because of this. But at the same time, we've known for a very long time now that the regulators don't like crypto at the moment. Uh, mm -hmm. the SEC especially and Gary Gensler don't like crypto so I think the fact that they actually made a move is a relief because markets generally hate uncertainty mm -hmm. and Gary Gensler making his move and basically putting it all out in the open and airing it out basically removes that uncertainty from the market and I, and I actually think that people believe that this is going to either be settled uh, and, and there won't be any kind of I guess material impact in the long run or we'll actually get a positive impact from this where we actually get re uh, legislation uh written and, and passed and we actually get proper regulations put in place because I don't know how Gary Gensler is going to go to a court of law and and argue that he has actually done what he's supposed to do to to quote-unquote protect investors while there's all this evidence to the contrary uh, especially going up against as I said like two of the biggest exchanges who have a lot of money and a lot of will to fight this uh i think coinbase especially brian armstrong and and, and definitely his chief chief legal officer paul grebel who you interviewed yesterday or the day before uh i, I think they're very ideologically involved in this uh and, and it's really for them about uh, making sure that they can uh, uh, in ensure that the SEC can't just get away with doing whatever they want, uh, which I think is is just based, I guess, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and we definitely we obviously have more to talk about with the SEC and Coinbase and Binance, but um, the to me the fact that Coinbase has a date with Gary Gensler and the SEC in court is bullish. That is a good thing. That is something to be mm -hmm. excited about. Just one last thing on this whole like time-based capitulation thing. Because I remember when, when we went through this, Anthony, back in the, the last, uh, last bear market, right between 2017 and, or 2018 and 2020, we were in mm -hmm. that 2019, I'm not sure if Kraken charts, oh, that's, oh, there they do, lovely. Uh, so like right now, it kind of feels like we're right here. And I'm pointing to the era where Ether went up to like almost $400 in the middle of 2019 before it went back down to 120 before the COVID dump, then back down to 80. And so like, to me, this was like, here is the, what we just went through from 2018 to 2019. And then 2019 to 2020 was the time-based capitulation part of the market. And I'm kind of worried if we like play this forward, we're like, we're, we're at this like local high in the, over the last year or so. And it kind of feels like 2019 where like, yeah, we bottomed and then we doubled and then we went back down to the bottom again before we had a bull market. And I'm, so I'm kind of worried about, yeah, we are in a one year era long high that's going to find, like go back down just out of boredom, not for any particular reason, but out of boredom, it'll go back down. How do you feel about that? So there are definitely a lot of similarities um, between, I guess, the last 
maybe six to 12 months and 2019, I think on the non-price side of things, so like the social sentiment and stuff like that, definitely feels very similar. But I would caveat the the price action of 2019, um, especially on, on uh, ETH, with uh, the fact that during 2019, especially during the time when ETH and BTC went up a lot and was a few months, mid, about mid-2019, or I guess like early mid-2019, there was a massive Ponzi being run out of, I believe, China called Plus Token. Oh. And this Ponzi that. took in a lot of ETH and BTC, like many billions worth. And it was a huge source of buy pressure. Now, uh, I believe that is the main reason why the price retreated so much. And I f- struggle to see how ETH is going to do the same kind of price reduction because I believe it went to 360 and then down to like 100. So whatever percentage decrease that is, I think it's like 60% down or something. Uh, I-, I struggle to see ETH going down 60% from where did it go to like 2000 100 or something 2200 the last local top we had so it could go down from here I'm, I'm i'm not sure but at the same time we don't have that that same kind of artificial kind of buy pressure that brought us back up here and also eth is much bigger as an asset than it was in 2019 so the volatility is definitely going to be less so yeah as i said i, I we could definitely go back down we could go back down to like 1400 which seems to be a place where people like to to, to test levels because it's the old all-time high right it's the 20 17, 18 all-time high. But at the same time, yeah, the market's been extremely resilient in the face of everything over the last, I guess, six months especially. Yeah, man, it has been a while since I have heard the words plus token. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> maybe the claim is that the high of 2019 was artificially pumped and perhaps even the low of 2023, 2022 was artificially low because of uh, the uh, FTX and all of the, mm-hmm. the the leverage of three hours capital, et cetera. Okay, cool. All right, moving on to uh, something I know that excites both you and me. Uh, this validator queue is up only. If we want to look at charts that are up and to the right, you, the validator queue is the one to look at. Um, there are now 700,000 validators coming, uh, 600,000 active and 100,000 waiting to come into the network. Uh, that is a wait time of 44 days, 20 hours, which is, I mean, it was at all-time highs last week. It was at all-time highs the week before. It's all-time highs this week. Uh, and of course, the execute is just zero. So you are free to leave ETH staking, but to get in 44 hours, 20 days. What do you get? What do you make of this, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, as bullish as I am on ETH staking, I didn't expect there to be this big of a queue so so quickly. I mean, we are not that far from Chappella or uh, staking withdrawals being live. It's it's almost been two months now since they went live, and wow, those two months have gone by very quickly. Uh, but uh, the fact that we're already at um, like ninety five thousand pending validators with you know forty four days waiting around here for to clear that queue, and it's just been up only with with basically. Besides Kraken withdrawing and a few other withdrawals here and there after Chappella went live, we haven't really seen any withdrawals. And uh, it, it has definitely surprised me in a, in a very good way, obviously. And I think that it's kind of a bit frustrating for me because I want to spin up some more validators and I'm like, I, I still do it, but then I'm like, Ugh. I, I remember the days of not having to wait even like a day to spin it up. Like um, in, in the queue. Um, and was, for, for 45 days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, uh, but but there are other ways to obviously get into staking as well. Um, I, I believe some of the LSDs like front the yield for you anyway when before they kind of activate the validator. But the, you know, it, it, there are different ways to do this. But I think that 
seeing it being up only like this just really validates a lot of people's theses around withdrawals being a mass de-risking event and being incredibly bullish instead of bearish. And it's just funny to see how wrong the bears were about that that kind of uh, withdrawal uh, upgrade. God, Ethereum, Ethereum bears, always wrong. Always wrong. <laughs> yeah, it uh, is a trend. <laughs> it, it, it reminds me, I was saying this last week with Ryan, like, we were all bullish on the burn uh, pre EIP 1559 and then EIP 1559 came in and it was burning way more than we all thought that it would. And now the same thing mm -hmm. is happening with staking. It's like we knew that we thought the Ethereum bulls thought that it would be a de-risking de event. We didn't realize to what degree it would just open up the floodgates for so much Ether to come in and started. It, I think like once it once it became slightly bigger than expected, that started to become a medic It's like. Oh, everyone's staking. Look at look mm -hmm. how many people are staking. Maybe maybe I should stake. And it, it was big enough to the point where it turned into a meme. And now everyone's like, oh, everyone else is staking. I guess I'll just follow the herd. And now everyone is staking, which I think is like, of all memes to get behind, that's a great one. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's just great marketing because everyone's talking about ETH staking now and mm -hmm. people are understanding that you can get that really nice real yield uh, on ETH staking because obviously there is the issuance part of, of, of the rewards, but there's also the execution layer rewards, which are fees and MEV. That's actual real money that's being mm -hmm. spent by network participants that go to validators. So yeah, I think people finally woke up to, <laughs> to ETH staking. Moving on to some stats here. I thought this was pretty interesting. Since we are in June, halfway through the year, I wanted to pull out some uh, centralized exchange volume stats. So starting the week, uh, Coinbase was at 47% of United States trading volume, 47.5%. Now it's actually down to 38%. Uh, so Coinbase has actually lost 20% of United States market share. Uh, Kraken uh, is at 14.8% to start the year and is actually up to 22%. So it's up 50% on the year. And Anthony, question to you, but number three, United States volume crypto exchange, LMAX Digital. What the hell is LMAX Digital? <laughs> I have never the heard of The only time this. I ever hear about them is on the block because they're, they're, they're their headline sponsor. You can actually see on the left-hand side of your screen there, it's got LMAX as their logo. They're no all way. over the block as a sponsor. I've never used the exchange. I don't really know anyone that uses it. But yeah, I mean, it seems that their volumes are pretty big um huh. yeah yeah huh. <laughs> okay all right never never heard of it uh you can see uh, here's this ftx is going to zero <laughs> ftx jeez <laughs> just goes to zero it just goes to zero obviously of course yeah um pop quiz uh what percentage do you think gemini is at oh uh, it can't you can be that much the, i know you can yeah, see it on I the can screen see but it's pretty small it's way smaller than i thought it would be it is at one percent of United yeah. States trading volume. I did not realize it was going to be that little. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Gemini's always been the just the very small kind of not really talked about that much exchange uh, or US-based exchange. They they do make a lot of waves, I think, because of the fact that um, the Winklevoss twins are the you know the founders of it and they're pretty famous and they had their GUSD stablecoin, but that didn't really go anywhere. Right. So I, I'm not I'm not surprised by the the lack of volumes there, uh, especially given that they I believe were affected a lot by the stuff that happened with Barry Silbert and his right. different. Companies like DCG and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I do feel like the that's not surprising, but it might be surprising to, to people generally, though. Yeah, Binance US volume started the year at a, just about nine percent United States market share, currently coming in at just seven percent, and I expect that to approach 
zero next month because of the uh, SEC's uh, approved request to freeze all of Binance assets, which is actually where we are going to get to next. We're going to talk about SEC suing Binance and Coinbase. We're going to talk about the uh, promising new crypto bill inside of the United States. And also this cool uh, proposal that put, uh, was put out on the ETH research forum to increase the maximum balance of ETH per validator, allowing us to go above 32. I know Anthony's probably got his finger on the pulse of that. So we're going to talk about all of that and more. But first, I want to talk about these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible especially Kraken, our preferred exchange for crypto in 2023, which is increasing its market share in the United States volume. So maybe you should join the herd. Let's go hear from Kraken. <laughs> Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them any Anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Introducing ETHX from Stater. ETHX is a liquid staking token designed to maximize rewards, all while securing Ethereum. With Stater, you can run an Ethereum node with just four ETH, an 85% lower capital requirement versus the 32 ETH required for solo staking. With Stater's four ETH nodes, you can get a 35% average higher yield, since you charge fees to those who use your node to stake their ETH. By running a node with Stater, the ETHX staking derivative token can get minted on your validators and can flow into the world of DeFi, which Stater is actively building integrations and partnerships into to increase the utility of ETHX. Stater allows for both permissioned and permissionless nodes to join the network, maximizing its potential scalability for ETHX while preserving the values of decentralization and openness behind its liquid staking token. Go to staterlabs.com ETH and sign up to get access to the Stater staking protocol. Bankless Nation, we are back with our favorite person ever, Gary Gensler. Uh, Anthony, you ready to hear from Gary Gensler? Here we go. We don't need more uh, digital currency. We already have digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. It's called the euro. It's called the yen. They're all digital right now. We already have digital investments. And you, you have digital, you have entrepreneurs representing digital investments on this program all day long. And it's, it's whether it's the big tech companies, the automobile companies, uh, you name it. It's all digital right now, the investing world. What do you think about that, Anthony? Oh, man, he just really revealed his true intentions, huh? Mm -hmm. It seems like his true intentions for crypto is to basically effectively ban it in the US because he seems to personally not like crypto, which, oh, man, <laughs> which is just ridiculous because uh, a bureaucrat like this shouldn't have the power to do that, let alone be able to just openly say that and basically try to impart his own views on an entire industry. Uh, it's ridiculous. And honestly, I believe at this point he should resign, uh, given uh, not only what he said here, but a lot of the stuff that he's been doing. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, due to politics, I don't think that's that's going to happen because uh, the Democrats don't want to have their um, chair, the SEC chair that they appointed, resign because it would look really bad on, on them. But generally, yeah, him saying this is literally just him being like, oh, well, I'm going to drop the facade now and I'm basically going to tell the world what I really think. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly what uh, Jake Stravinsky's take was. Is like uh, it, he has been operating on by like a veil of obfuscation and uncertainty and unclarity. And now with suing Coinbase and Binance after doing the whole thing, like Coinbase, you're totally allowed to go public. You're totally fine. And then suing them later after the fact. That's exactly what Jake said, too, is like he's just now revealing his true intention is his true colors, even though like we all we all kind of knew it. It was still just like a gut gut feeling that we knew it. And now I feel like everyone has like the strong assurances like, no, this this is Gary and he's being a, a, a rogue tyrant. So just to recap the news, Bankless has done four shows on this this last week. So uh, we'll just recap this really quickly. SEC has sued Binance and CZ on allegations of violating federal securities law, failure to register as a clearing agency, failure to register as a broker, and failure to register as an exchange. Staking securities and staking as a service were also implicated. So the the um, uh, uh, the the staking service provided by Binance US was deemed a security tokens including Solana, Cardano, Matic, COT, Algo, Filecoin, Atom, Sand, Axie Infinity, and Mana were deemed as securities. Um, interestingly and unique to the Binance case was that uh, CZ and Binance uh, were uh, uh, charged with commingling funds. Uh, so a customer's assets were put through uh, an illegal entity that CZ owned and controlled called Sigma Chain. And so that is unique to the Binance case. That is just not something that is in the Coinbase case that we're going to get to specifically. Interestingly, also BUSD was named as a security, BUSD, the stable coin. Uh, and using the customer funds that was funneled uh, without customer's permission, apparently over $20 billion went through this, uh, organ this entity that CZ owned, Merit Peak, uh, that was associated. I don't know if all $20 billion was, was buying BUSD, but some amount of money going through this legal entity that CZ controlled called Merit Peak, purchased uh, BUSD, the stablecoin, and some of that money was, was users' funds. So not great, not great. Um, interestingly, uh, the day after the SEC has seeked emergency relief to ensure Binance US customers are protected, uh, and that is just uh, implementing a restraining order, a freeze on all Binance U.S. assets. Uh, and so if there is any concern that Binance uh, U.S. at least is insolvent, we're about, we're about to find out. I don't think there's any indication that there is, but either way, we will, we will learn. Uh, Anthony, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, the Binance case, uh, I guess like outside of the securities uh, kind of or unregistered securities that the SEC claims that both them and Coinbase have been trading in is generally, uh, I guess, pretty strong, to be honest, because, I mean, it's been an open secret for a while that Binance has been pretty shady, right? Especially in the early days of Binance. It's not like, it, it really has been an open secret. It's it's not something that I think that most people would disagree with, given that uh, they've been operating basically on this notion of regulatory arbitrage, where they move around different jurisdictions. They don't really have a permanent office and they do a lot of things that are quite quite dodgy. And there is a lot of evidence that the SEC has and has, has put out there that, that, I mean, it doesn't prove anything yet. Obviously they have to prove it, but it makes Binance look pretty bad. And the Coinbase case really doesn't have any of that because I don't think any of that went on. And they're really just going after Coinbase for trading things that they uh, allege are uh, unregistered securities. So I, I think Binance... 
look, I want Binance to win just based on the fact that the SEC doesn't deserve to to win any of these cases, given just how flagrant the flagrant they have been and and how they're trying to stuff things into them, like the unregistered security stuff. But at the same time, I'm not going to def- sit here and defend Binance and say that they're totally innocent in this and they haven't done anything wrong, given that the evidence that I've seen so far, but also given what I know about Binance since I've known about them since they basically became a company and all their practices over the years. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this because we've already seen a bunch of dirty laundry aired uh, by Binance lawyers themselves. I don't know if you're gonna if we're gonna talk about this about how Gensler tried to become an advisor to Binance in 2019. So yeah, you've got it up there. So if we're getting that this early, what else are we going to be getting from <laughs> from uh, Binance's lawyers? Are they just gonna take the gloves off and start <laughs> airing all this stuff? Uh, I don't know. It's gonna be an interesting uh, time to see what happens here. Yeah, the, the Binance case is is interesting due to its mis, mixed bag nature. There are things that are not, not about Binance that Binance is charged with, like staking as a service platforms are deemed to be a security. Binance is caught up in that. Uh, BUSC a stablecoin as security, Binance is caught up in that. Like Solana, Matic, all these tokens trading on Binance Exchange or securities, Binance is caught up in that. And then there's the commingling of user funds from mm-hmm. offshore entities that you that CZ controls. And uh, to Gary Gensler's benefit, he's able to wrap all of these things up together and say, look at what these crypto exchanges are doing. They are operating an unregulated Wild West fashion with no rules outside of the rule of law. And he gets to wrap everything together and put the bad things next to what the crypto industry thinks are just like the normal and, and good things. Uh, so mm-hmm. that is, it's, I mean, it's a pretty smart strategy from Gary Gensler, but like still illegitimate nonetheless. Yeah, so the headline, of course, Binance lawyers allege that SEC chair Gensler offered to serve as advisor to the crypto company in 2019. Uh, <laughs> it's just, which, it's man, been amazing. You, you could not write a better script. Uh, really, I mean, it's amazing to see how Gensler has changed his tunes over the year because over the years because he used to teach courses on Bitcoin and blockchain mm-hmm. at MIT. He used to promote uh, other kind of blockchains like Algorand, right? Of all blockchains, he was promoting <laughs> Algorand, um, and then security. you know two. Yeah, exactly. Two, three years later, he's just completely changed his tune to effectively wanting to ban crypto in in the US. So I I don't know exactly what has changed. I don't really have evidence to what has changed. I have my own speculations, one of them being that it seems like he cares more about his own personal power and political power, and he wants to advance his own career other than anything else. And he sees crypto as like a a joke. It doesn't deserve to to live. And it's just his way to, I guess, get more power by going after crypto, because right now it's very popular to go after crypto but also i feel like he's trying to get a lot of the egg off his face from basically cozying up to sbf and not going after ftx but now going after binance for pretty much similar things that he should have gone after ftx for uh there's a lot of things a lot of moving parts here but yeah it it doesn't seem like gary gensley is acting in the best interest of the american people at all it seems like he's acting in the best interest of himself and himself only yeah, that was uh, Jake Stravinsky and Amanda's take when uh, we did the show yesterday. Is is he, uh, Gary Gensler is using crypto as a means to an end to elevate mm-hmm. his political status for some sort of political aspiration. So mm-hmm. he's just one of those figures, uh, one of those people that plays a political game that would like a bigger and bigger chair. Uh, and so he's using crypto as a way to do this. Okay, turning into the, the Coinbase side of news, SEC charges Coinbase for operating an unregistered securities exchange brokerage and clearing agency, more or less the same exact suit that uh, they took to Binance. Uh, the, the big things here, the, the unique thing that is unique to the Coinbase suit is that 
um, they emphasize the Coinbase wallet and say they said that Coinbase is offering brokerage brokerages services via Coinbase wallet. Uh, and so they and this is what was actually said in the Squawk Box that um, interview that Gary Gensler was on is like Coinbase lets you trade 16,000 tokens using their their software, which uh, is basically just saying, yeah, with Coinbase wallet, you can trade on Uniswap and you can access all the tokens there is basically what he's saying. Um, but uh, they the, in this suit, the wallet is being um, mentioned as part of Coinbase's exchange infrastructure, which is kind of positioning the SEC to go after generalized DeFi, non-custodial wallets, non-custodial apps, anything that allows a token to be traded. Uh, so that is a foot in the door that sets a precedent that is that is unique to this case. Um, of course, the, the big components about this thing is, is unlike the Binance case, the only thing about the SEC v Coinbase is that Coinbase is being charged with listing securities and doing security things like the staking as a service with CBETH, Solana, Matic, um, uh, like the many of the other tokens were deemed securities. Uh, and so there's nothing that Coinbase did like commingling funds or sending users money offshore, et cetera, anything like that. It's just about, hey, Coinbase is doing things with securities. Uh, and so that's really all they are claiming about Coinbase. And of course, interestingly, uh, the SEC used Coinbase's risks disclosures from their own S1, which an S1 is what you file before you go public as a company. They used, the SEC used Coinbase's S1 as evidence against Coinbase because Coinbase said, hey, some of the, the SEC might deem some of the assets that we have on our exchanges to be securities. And the SEC goes, ha ha, so you knew, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. insane because it's actually self-referential, it's a self-referential argument. Um, anyways, uh, about, about uh, Coinbase specifically, Anthony, what's your take here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of uh, shotgun approach here from the SEC, basically trying to go after everything at, at once and maybe try and overload Coinbase's resources because they know that Coinbase will will fight this and, and fight this basically till its end. They're not going to give up, it seems like. So maybe they're just trying to go after them with everything they've got and, and water them down or kind of make it harder for them. But at the same time, yeah, there is all this evidence of, of the SEC doing things that don't make any sense, right? They basically let Coinbase go public and, and they, they're now uh, alleging that they're trading securities or trading unregistered securities that they were trading at the time that they went public. So w when you kind of look at that from that lens, it looks looks very weird. Um, and it seems like the SEC has a, a bone to pick with Coinbase specifically as well. I think because Coinbase is fighting so hard, they're like, well, if you're going to fight us on this, then we're literally going to come after you with everything we've, we've got, which, which is what, what I feel is happening. Because this is, isn't the first time the SEC has gone after Coinbase and given them grief. Obviously with Kraken, you know, they went after Kraken for their staking product and then Kraken closed their staking product down and the SEC hasn't gone after them for anything else. Like why isn't the SEC going after Kraken for trading the same assets that Coinbase is, is trading? Maybe they will, like maybe this is going to age poorly and they're actually going to sue them as well. But if they don't, then it clearly seems like they are only going to go after the people that say they're going to fight because they want to make sure that no one else gets the idea of fighting them. Because if you try to fight us, we're going to come after you with everything we've got. Now, that's just pure speculation on my part. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they will sue Kraken. But yeah, it seems like they're definitely trying to go after Coinbase uh, as hard as they can. And with Binance, it's limited in scope, just as a, a related point here, because it's only Binance US. 
uh, they can maybe have some jurisdiction over Binance Global if they can prove that CZ was commingling funds and all that sorts of stuff. But it's probably going to be limited to Binance US. And I think that what's going to happen is Binance US will probably just shut down. Uh, I don't think Binance cares enough about Binance US to keep it alive in the midst of this. And then, yeah, once it shuts down, uh, I don't think they're going to cry over it. But the SEC pretty much gets what it wants as well. Mm-hmm. In a uh, extremely Chad move, uh, Brian Armstrong says hmm. that he will not be shutting down the staking service. So Coinbase will continue to run the CBE staking as a service program. Uh, they were ready to prove this in court that what they are doing is not a security. And so they uh, appear to be so confident that it's not a security that they're not even going to bother to, to shut it down. Um, Senator Bill Haggerty uh, says the SEC is weaponizing their role to kill an industry, allowing a company to list publicly and then stonewalling their attempts to register is indefensible. Gary Gensler expect to hear from Congress. So like it's stuff like this that is like, man, Gary, what you doing, bro? Because it's you're going up as Icarus right and in, flying right into the sun. Mm -hmm. At least that's what it appears uh, appears to me. Uh, and he's getting pushback from not just, you know, all of the crypto industry, but many, many um, uh, regulators and legislators uh, in, in government. Uh, for some reason, Gary thinks that he can just do this uh, and get away with it. Anthony, do you have a take here? Yeah, I mean, you can see that this is a Republican, right? So I don't think Gensler actually cares about what they say. I think Gensler cares about what high-ranking Democrats think and what they say. And unfortunately, they're on his side, mm -hmm. right? You have Elizabeth Warren that's on his side. Uh, you have, uh, by proxy, really Biden that's on his side because he listens to Elizabeth Warren on a lot of this stuff. You have um, uh, Maxine Waters, I think, as well, Brad Sherman. They, there's just these names that you, you, you see pop up time and time again that take the side of the SEC and say, that the SEC is doing a great job, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the Democrats, uh, at least in the Senate, in that the presidential level are in power right now. So I think Gensler doesn't necessarily care what these people think. He only cares what those people think. And I've been thinking about this recently. This might be a, a bit of a, a crude analogy, but I, I'm thinking of a, as like the human centipede of the high-ranking Democrats, where you basically have these three high-ranking, I think it's like, you know, Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Gary Gensler, and they all seem to be working on the same wavelength of, you know, screw crypto the sec needs to be able to regulate this industry it's bad for everything warren's trying to to go out um and say that crypto is responsible for the fentanyl, fentanyl crisis in the u.s and i'm like this is just insane they're, they're literally making shit up now mm -hmm. because i think that they're getting so much pushback from the crypto industry and they're getting so much pushback from from other angles they're just like you know what we're just gonna make stuff up now we're just gonna say whatever to get what we want because it, it, they're, maybe they're even getting frustrated at this point because that because crypto is putting up such a fight as well um, but yeah, it, it's very it's very weird um, when you when you look at it, and very weird what they're doing. But then when you kind of come to the uh, I guess conclusion that a lot of them are just in it for power, and they want as much power as they can assume for themselves. Maybe at the end of the day, they don't actually care how this all resolves. They just want to make headlines. They just want to market themselves, and and that's really it. Because. Uh, Gensler might may not be the SEC chair when the Coinbase and Binance cases are resolved because it could take two, three years for it to resolve and Gensler may have moved on already to Treasury or something like that. So I think really it's all just a, a power play for them at the end of the day. Um, and I haven't seen anything really to suggest otherwise. Moving on to a different part of this conversation. Um, I know this one uh, triggered you, Anthony. <laughs> this is a Jack, Jack Dorsey. Jack on Twitter retweeting a question saying, is ETH a security? And Jack, Jack Dorsey, former CEO of crypto or of, of Twitter, just says yes. And I'm going to also bring up this tweet from uh, Udi Wertheimer. 
who goes, Coinbase onboarded millions to Bitcoin, many minted many multimillionaires by giving them trusted access to Bitcoin early on, helped onboard institutions such as MicroStrategy. And he says, seeing laser-eyed maxis cheering as the SEC tries to take down Coinbase makes me sick to my stomach. Uh, Anthony, I, I know you've got some hot takes about this. Yeah, I, I mean, like... Look, there's no secret that Jack is a Bitcoin maximalist, right? And it's just very sad that these people fall into this camp of, oh, we're cypherpunks. Oh, we're anti-nation state. We're anti-government. Oh, wait, no, SEC, please call, uh, label Ether security. Please police all the other crypto assets out there. And please just bless Bitcoin and make sure that Bitcoin is the one holy asset in crypto. And it's just really embarrassing and, and disgusting. And then Jack says this, and then he's challenged on this, and he doesn't reply to any of the challenges because people actually explain to him, hey, you know, it is, is not a security because of this, this, and this, and this reason. And yeah, it, there's no logic here. There's no reasoning behind it. All it is, is tribalism and fanaticism and these people just wanting the competition to be killed by the state, which is just the grand irony of it all coming from Bitcoiners. Uh, but uh, don't forget that uh, today, <laughs> this week, the SEC is officially 89 years old. So Gary Gensler saying happy birthday to the SEC. Thank you to the Securities Act, Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And then he breaks it down with a threat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unreal, man. It's so bad, man. If you, if you scroll down a bit, you might see my, my reply to this. Um, I don't know. Maybe show more replies. I don't know if that's going to... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I, oh, I said man. like 89 you're, you're years old. You're zeroing in on a ratio mark. on him. It, yeah, explains why there doesn't seem to be any signs of cognitive function left. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> oh my God. It's what world does this live in? And then to, to tie, finally uh, tie <laughs> off this, uh, this conversation, uh, we just have Gary Gensler kind of doing like the aliens pose and goes, Earth is a security uh, because mm -hmm. everything is a security, according to Gary Gensler. Okay, that was all of that conversation. Coming up next, we got a bunch of Ethereum news. We got both Optimism and Arbitrum experienced downtime this week. One was planned ahead of time, one was not. <laughs> uh, an ETH research proposal to change the 32 ETH stake number, along with a bunch of other pretty cool, exciting things. Nick Johnson's got an ENS update. Pool Together's got an update. Rocket Pool and ZK Sync Era has an update. We're going to get to all these conversations and more. But first, a moment to talk about these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now. Introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Mantle is a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 network built differently from the other Layer 2s you may be familiar with. Mantle is a modular Layer 2 built on the OP stack but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle's gas fees by 80% compared to other Layer 2s, but it also reduces gas fee volatility. Mantle has a decentralized sequencer set, eliminating the risk of downtime and censorship on the network. And because Mantle implements multi-party computation 
implementation nodes, layer one settlement execution is shortened from seven days to as low as just one or two. Mantle is the first layer two built by a DAO and is backed by one of the biggest DAO treasuries in the world, BitDAO. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded to help the growth of Mantle, like Game7 for Web3 gaming, or EduDAO for the world of DeSci, and Bybit for TVL, liquidity, and on-ramps. Check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xmantle. And we are back with Bedrock. Bedrock is now installed, installed, is that the right word? Into the OP mainnet. So uh, the OP mainnet went down for a few hours while they upgraded the the, the network into its Bedrock update. Uh, and so that is now concluded and the Bedrock sequencer is now up and running. Uh, Bedrock, what does Bedrock do? It reduces transaction fees. It sets up uh, the OP mainnet to have this coherent super chain ecosystem. It does a bunch of other things, uh, everything to be excited about. Um, just lays the foundation for a bunch of future steps. Uh, and it also uh, improved the security by implementing a two-step withdrawal process for bridge assets, assets, which helps the security of the chain itself. Uh, loading up a layer two fees.info, you can now see the optimism, a swap on optimism is coming in at nine cents, which I believe makes it the cheapest optimistic rollup that there is, of course, there's a ton of variables that goes into this thing. So that is not just a, a simple um, a simple way to view these things, but still coming in at, at uh, nine cents on a, on a Uniswap swap, that's pretty good. Anthony, uh, what's your take about Optimism uh, Bedrock? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time coming. It's basically their version of uh, Arbitrum Nitro. So Nitro went live on Arbitrum a few months ago, and now Optimism has with Bedrock, uh, and it's got it's uh, basically upgraded the whole OP stack. So anyone that's using the OP stack, such as Base, uh, the the Coinbase uh, Layer Two, will be able to take uh, a benefit of this as well. And I think one of the major things, uh, and you've got it up here on your screen, that Jesse Pollack talks about, is that with uh, the Bedrock upgrade, uh, uh, optimistic rollups built using the OP stack will actually be able to use validity proofs and not just fraud proofs and a validity proof essentially if you if you use that instead of a fraud proof you make your chain a, what is, I guess is known as a zero knowledge roll up instead of an optimistic roll up and you can build hybrid constructions and, as well and things like that so and this is something that I've talked about for a long time saying uh, exactly what Jesse says yeah it's not zero knowledge or optimistic roll up it's both it doesn't have to be uh, you know either or you don't have to choose you can literally do both and the te best technology can win in the long run and optimism and arbitrary networks can be upgraded to be, you know, uh, ZK rollups essentially. So they're not stuck being optimistic rollups, which I always found bizarre that people thought that they were stuck and they couldn't mm -hmm. upgrade when literally it's just technology, it's just software. Of course, you can upgrade it, right? And uh, neither of these... Um, chains right now are trying to be like super decentralized or they have to go through a long ass process to get upgrades into the network they're they're upgrading and moving at a, at a pretty rapid pace so so yeah but uh, but yeah jesse's tweet here i think addresses that nicely as well yeah and, and it's important to note that um a validity prover a zk validity prover is um a very important step to uh enable what the optimism ecosystem calls the super chain right the cross-chain composability of op stack chains uh zk zk tech um, from mm -hmm. just a high level, just allows for composability and synchronous synchronicity across trains. Uh, so this is just a step in that direction. Uh, so congrats to the uh, Optimism team for shipping Bedrock. They've been uh, having they've been their sights on on that update for a very long time now. Uh, also in the layer two world, Arbitrum ran out of gas, <laughs> so it stopped mm -hmm. it stopped uh, deploying its transactions, its checkpoints to the the layer one because it ran out of gas to do so. Uh, that happened for about an hour before someone uh, sent 1.4 ETH back to the sequencer so that it could continue to checkpoint to the layer one. Uh, so the, but the Arbitrum uh, 
actual chain still continued as normal. It still was a blockchain, a layer two, adding Arbitrum blocks onto the Arbitrum blockchain. It just wasn't checkpointing to the layer one for a little bit over an hour until we filled it up with gas. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of the more unexpected reasons as to why a, a layer two will stop checkpointing. How would you classify this, Anthony? Because this it's isn't downtime, it's just like non-finality of a layer two. How, how would you explain what this meant? Yeah, it d definitely, um, you know, downtime is probably the wrong term for it. But also there's some added nuance here that the reason why the, I guess, like the the uh, the, the um, address that's used to batch ran out of uh, ETH for gas was because there is an automated process that actually uh, refills that address with ETH. But there was a bug. You can actually see it's detailed here. There was a bug that occurred on the sequencer that led to its batches reverting on chain. So when the batches revert, the sequencer is not refunded the gas cost for sending the batch from the contract that refunds them. So this isn't like a human sitting there having to re-up the ETH that's in the account. This is an automated process, but because there was a very specific bug, it made it so that automated process didn't happen because if it did happen, it would have actually drained all of the ETH uh, for mm. no reason. It, would have, it, would, it wouldn't have worked properly. So uh, this bug happened, they fixed it, and it wasn't just someone forgetting to send ETH to, to the contract. And in saying that as well, anyone can send ETH to this contract. So anyone could have started started this up again if they if they wanted to which is i think actually pretty cool hmm. okay moving on to this eth research proposal increase the mass max effective balance a modest proposal so this is coming from my, uh, mike neuter uh basically this idea is to uh reduce the rigidity around the 32 eth minimum to become a validator now it's not proposing a lower number but it's proposing that 32 doesn't have to actually be the maximum number. So right now, like mm -hmm. validators are in increments of 32, 32 or 64 or, oh gosh, uh, 96, 96 is how that math works. Um, mm -hmm. And so he's saying like, we don't actually have to have that rigid upper bound. So it could be 32, it could be 33, it could be 32 and a half. Uh, and so as a result of this 32 ETH rigidity, we have a very large set validator set because every increment of 32 instead of 320 ETH becoming one validator, it becomes 10 validators. And so what does this do? Uh, this has just a, a, a overhead. It increases the overhead about the, the whole networking layer. And so this proposal to increase the 32 ETH max effective balance, what this actually does is actually, I, in my mind, I think it's really bullish for solo stakers because as they get ether from staking, they have to wait to accumulate 32 ether in order to redeposit it. But with the increase of the max effective balance, they can stake 33 ether, 33.1 ether, 33.2 ether. And so they get to auto compound their stake and have faster compound interest. Uh, there's a bunch of other benefits, uh, but uh, Anthony, I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain those because those are more technical and I know you're more technical than I am. Yeah, yeah, well, so the way this basically would work is that right now, I mean, the way it works today is that you're, you're, you're right. 32 ETH is the minimum that's required to spin up a validator, but it is also the maximum in that if you add more than 32 ETH to one validator, you are not going to earn more rewards. You are only going to earn rewards on that 32 ETH. Uh, and if you were to spin up a second validator with another 32 ETH, that's when you start earning uh, additional rewards because you've now spun up another validator. In, and with this proposal, what would happen is that, as you said, you could start 
stake a maximum of, I don't know what the exact number is. I don't know if that's been ironed out yet, but let's say the maximum uh, is like 96 ETH, right? So mm -hmm. it's a three validators worth. Well, you could stake like 70 ETH or 80 ETH in one validator and you would earn the rewards based on that. So proportional to your ETH stake. Now, why this is really cool is that it, it doesn't mean that you, like as a solo staker, as you said, you don't actually have to save up to spin up another 32 ETH validator. So say you have 32 ETH um, and you've staked it and then you have another 10 ETH. Well, to stake that into another validator, you would need to acquire another 22 ETH. But with this proposal, you could just add that to your existing validator. And then also with your rewards that you get, you can also add them to your validator. And the advantage that uh, LSDs have right now over solo staking is that they can actually compound their rewards because they have a, a huge amount of rewards coming in and they they can compound it for the whole um, share share of the LSD network. Whereas solo stakers actually have to wait until they have 32 ETH again to compound their rewards. So this would basically allow them to do this. And now because of this, what this also does on the technical side of things is it basically allows for a reduction in the amount of, I guess, like actual validators there are, but it's not a reduction in security there would still be the same amount of ETH staked. There would still be the same amount of, of full nodes. It's just that the validators, like instead of someone running 10 validators because they have 320 ETH, they would run one validator that gives them 320 uh 320 ETH as well. So uh, that has 320 ETH then and the rewards would be the same. So, and then as I said, the compounding rewards would also also factor into this, which is which is really exciting. And what this does by reducing the validator um, account is it takes the load of the peer-to-peer -peer layer. So it makes it easier to run validators and full nodes. It's already really easy to do this, but it takes the load off, takes the load off the network, makes the network generally more stable, resilient and, and secure. Um, and then it also enables other things. So if you scroll up to the top of this post, uh, Mike actually says what this uh, uh, what this does. It actually unblocks something called single slot finality and enshrined PBS and reduces unnecessary strain on the P2P layer. So single slot finality uh, and enshrined PBS are two of the biggest upgrades coming, I believe, to the beacon chain over the next few years. And I'll quickly just explain both of those. Single slot finality basically reduces the finality time from the current around 13 minutes, so two epochs, to 12 seconds. Because a slot is a block on the Ethereum beacon chain or, I mean, it's not literally a block, but people think of it like that. It's 12 seconds. So you would have finality within 12 seconds. And then enshrined PBS is basically taking what MEV boost does today with the relays and, and, and the MEV ecosystem there and basically enshrining it in the Ethereum protocol itself. So it's not a piece of separate software you run. It's actually part of the core protocol. And this would, would allow for those things to, to go live there. And uh, I think just one last thing, I know I'm ranting a little bit here, mm -hmm. but one last thing, there is potentially a downside to this that people have brought up in that, it would unfairly reward those who basically had, uh, I guess, like more ETH to compound than th than those that didn't because of the share of rewards. But I haven't looked too much into that and I haven't done the math on that, so I can't give too much of an opinion on that. But uh, I believe that would be something that needs to be researched and, and kind of uh, ironed out before we could do something like this. But overall, this is a very promising proposal and something that I believe in one way or another, one shape or another, will actually get implemented into the protocol. Yeah. This was uh, just proposed two days ago on the E3 search forum. So it is in its pre-EIP phase. I don't even know if it has an EIP number. Um, no, so very, very early so. <laughs> in the process. But um, I think many, many of us are, are very excited about it. Uh, moving on to uh, ENS update. So this is Nick.eth, Nick Johnson from the ENS uh, um, organization. Excited to show that this is now public. My.box. 
Dotbox will be the first blockchain native DNS routable TLD and it's enabled via ENS. All registrations and transfers will be on chain and the owner of the NNT, NFT will own both the DNS and ENS names. Uh, I, I think what this means, check, uh, check me if I'm wrong, but there's these new domains called Dotboxes and owning, which is a DNS domain. And so you can own, you can make like anthony.box, which is a DNS domain, not just an ENS name. So you would go like www.anthony.box.box. Uh, but owning that domain is as an NFT on Ethereum and it routes and it plugs into the ENS ecosystem. Did I explain this right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain this like I'm five because if people aren't familiar with the way DNS works, uh, it can be quite hard to explain that. So I'm not going to get into how, how DNS works. I mean, I probably don't remember all the details there either. Um, but yeah, the, the cool thing about this is that there is currently like, you know, sassel.eth, right, where I could... Uh, host a website on sassel.eth. It's not just my Ethereum address, but I could host a website on there um, and it resolves. I could host it on, on IPFS, but uh, it's not part of uh, of DNS. It's not DNS routable from what I know, uh, unless you're using um, a service that does this, like uh, .limo, I believe is one of the services out there. Whereas .box, uh, from, from what I can tell here, it would be routable on DNS. So you could just visit it on, on any browser and, and it would be fine. And it would also obviously be uh, enabled as uh, integrated with ENS and and an, and, and an NFT on Ethereum too. So there were some concerns around this in the comments. I don't know, uh, just, just to bring up uh, the concerns that it's not as censorship resistant um, and it doesn't really, it can be like seized by the FBI, like they can seize domains. It's a valid concern, but at the same time, I don't think everything needs to be totally censorship resistant and decentralized. There can be these solutions that, uh, that kind of uh, people can use and they can use other ones if they want as well. So I guess just another solution that plugs into the ENS ecosystem. And then the other cool, exciting announcement that came out, uh, Rocket Pool coming to ZK Sync Era. So you'll be able to uh, uh, liquid stake your ETH on ZK Sync Era by ho just holding our ETH in your wallet. Just like on Mainnet and other Layer 2s, our ETH will continue to accrue staking rewards automatically. Can you, I, I, I didn't have time to fully unpack what this announcement is, but uh, what's, how, how does, it's not just our ETH on ZK Sync Era, correct? It is actually a more formal integration. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, and I guess like it, it's done so that people can obviously buy our ETH uh, without having to buy it on, on mainnet, right? So you would buy it on a layer two and it'd be a lot cheaper to, to buy it on there. And that our that ETH is actually part of the canonical Rocket Pool chain. So it actually still, a uh, Rocket Pool network, I should say. And it actually still accrues the same values as you would on, on layer one. So yeah, it really is effectively just buying kind of our ETH on, on there. I, you're not able, as far as I can tell, uh, I don't think so you're able to do this you can't stake your eth and spin up a mini pool on zk sync era and, and anything like that it's really just to be able to acquire our eth uh and then be able to accrue the, the rewards the same way you would on l1 ethereum and i think these partnerships and integrations are announced like this because of the liquidity obviously you can't just say oh go buy our eth on this layer two if there's no one providing liquidity for it so i think that's what they try to do they bootstrap it with the l2 themselves with rocket pool the rocket pool community and then it allows people to buy our eth on on, on these L2s. And then something that I saw that made me really, really excited. This is uh, Leighton Cusack from Pool Together. The whole 
pulley movement, uh, the the blue uh, birds that people have on their on their uh, profile pictures. This came from uh, a lawsuit that was going against Pull Together forever ago, a frivolous lawsuit from uh, some some lawyers, I, th I think, in New York. Uh, that case has been dismissed, so the pulley saga is now fully closed. So uh, I know Layton has uh, had been dealing with this for over a year now. I'm sure that is a huge weight off of his back. Uh, it put together a huge community of of Puffers, pool, poolers, I don't know what these, uh, poolers, I think they're poolers, um, but just like congrats to Layton to having this case dismissed because it was a frivolous lawsuit, frivolous class action lawsuit by some lawyers that are, are known to be doing that. And so uh, it's a big, big congrats to Layton here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I saw this just before. Uh, yeah, I mean, the lawsuit itself was garbage. It felt like it was literally just done to try and attack DeFi in some way. And the fact that this case was dismissed, yeah, huge, huge win for, for Leighton and, and the entire DeFi ecosystem, really. Uh, I, I'm just really happy that th this was the outcome. Coming up next, Bankless Nation, we got some questions from the nation as well as some hot takes from the week. We're going to talk about Cosmos. We're going to talk about this uh, layer two definition conversation. I don't know if you were tapped into that one, Anthony, but that was funny. Uh, anyways, uh, all of that I, I and see more. it. I see yeah. it. <laughs> uh, all of that and more. But first, a moment to talk about these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Immutable is at the forefront of Web3 gaming on a mission to bring digital ownership to every player, offering the world's best games and game development platform. Immutable lets game builders and players focus on great gaming experiences. So build your next Web3 game on easy mode with Immutable's leading full stack Web3 gaming platform. Its built-in UX features like the Immutable Passport are designed for games to scale to the next billion players coming to Web3. With Immutable, players can sign up with an email, pay with a credit card, and experience a frictionless purchase flow inside of games. So discover your next favorite game and explore a network of 150 games building on Immutable, including such titles as Gossam Chain, Guilds of Guardians, Illuvium, Ember Sword, and Metalcore. So join Web3's largest ecosystem of games and players. Build, play, and connect at immutable.com. Hiring people worldwide, paying them in crypto, providing them access to benefits, it all so complex. But it doesn't have to be. Complying with labor laws, payroll rules, tax obligations, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly. And it's drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. But there is good news. Toku is here. Toku is the first employment and compensation platform for the crypto industry that makes this easy. Toku helps you hire employees or contractors and pay them in fiat or crypto legally, compliantly, and with all the taxes handled in over a hundred different jurisdictions. So whether you're an early stage company with just a team of two or you're an enterprise with 200, Toku has a solution that meets your needs. Toku is already working with the leading companies in the space. Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So transform your employment and token payroll operations with Toku. You can reach out to Toku at toku.com slash bankless or click the link in the show notes. And we are back with questions from the Bankless Nation. If you want your question asked and you are a Bankless citizen, hop into the Discord. Every Wednesday, we ask y'all, what do you want asked on the Bankless Weekly Rollup? And then we ask them. This first question comes from Simon Bruce, 1974. I'm guessing you were born in 1974, Bruce, uh, <laughs> or Simon. Uh, after listening to the episode on Eigenlayer, I would like to understand where the actual yield comes from. If the yield for ETH staking is capped at roughly around 4%, how is it that by restaking, you are able to earn 7% or more? If the underlying asset yield is capped and Eigenlayer doesn't have a token, where is that coming from? Next, And, and that's the first question. Uh, next question is, isn't this the kind of thing that blew up the global economy in 2008? Anthony, what's your answer? 
So my answer is, I mean, first of all, good question, because you always want to ask where the yield's going to come from, right? But my answer is that with Eigenlayer, there are a number of different ways the yield can actually be paid out by whatever project is using Eigenlayer as the backbone of whatever they're building. So for example, let's say that someone uses Eigenlayer to spin up a new Oracle network. Well, maybe that Oracle network has a token and maybe people are paying that Oracle network to use their Oracles. So they could one, pay out token, right? Token, uh, I guess like, um, tokens as liquidity mining to uh, get that yield number right. Uh, and, and two, that those fees could also be going to the people that are restaking, which would be as, as the yield. So one of them would be, I guess, like a inflated kind of imaginary yield if you, you know, if you take that view when it comes to token incentives. And the other one would be a real yield from real, real users paying to, to use the network. And uh, to use another example, not just an Oracle network, but like a data availability network where people are paying to use this, this network, paying to post their data there. And then those fees would go to the uh, the ETH restakers that are that are uh, I guess using Eigenlayer, and then on top of that, I mean, you say Eigenlayer doesn't have a token. I mean, my my kind of number one talking point within crypto is that like if it doesn't have a token right now, it's probably it's gonna, gonna have, have a, token a token in the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they could also be doing token incentives, Eigenlayer themselves for this sort of stuff. So good question, asking where the yield's coming from. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's coming from like new tokens that are being printed just infinitely and some kind of like weird terror like thing, then yeah, I mean, it would obviously be uh, something that should be called out and, and people should be saying, you know, this looks like a Ponzi. But at, at the same time, uh, there is a real yield there. People, if users are paying to use it, right, they're paying fees to use it, then that would go to the restakers, which would reflect as a percentage yield. I don't, I don't, I haven't watched the episode yet, so I don't know, um, you know, uh, the, the full context here, but that's, that's basically where the yield would come from. And then the, uh, the the other thing I'll just say is just like Eigenlayer is meant to spawn many, many, many networks, but the economics of all of these networks are more or less the tried and true science that we know about crypto economics, as in you need security, you pay for security with fees and token emissions uh, until your network is sufficiently bootstrapped. The only difference is I, is that, you know, with new networks, there's like, hey, new native token that is the staking token. And then with Eigenlayer, it's like, hey, Ether is a staking token. The the network token does something else, but Ether is a staking token. And so you Ether gets some of the yield of the network. Uh, and so that, mm -hmm. that is simply the pattern where, where uh, the yield comes from. The next question, which is, uh, isn't this the kind of thing that blew up the global economy in 2008? Uh, I mean... There's a lot left to be learned about Eigenlayer. Uh, I think the simple answer is no, because like credit default swaps and black market, uh, who owns what is not really, I would say relevant to the Eigenlayer system. Um, there are risks to Eigenlayer um, and and like restaking, that definitely sounds like rehypothification, but I would actually say that there's a pretty big difference between what these things are. Not to say that there are no risks uh, and those risks might be significant, but they are at least different from <laughs> the risks that we saw in 2008. Uh, next question coming in from uh, Udamania. How do I ensure my normie wife has access to my ETH if I die? My biggest hesitance in furthering my investment is to make sure that she has access to it. Anthony, do you have any advice for Udamania here? So there are services popping up that are, I, I guess, like trying to make a solution here on how this actually gets handled and how estates get handled. But the problem with something like this is that there is a lot of real world legal 
kind of work and stuff around this that exists already for handling estates of, of deceased people, that these solutions that are coming online for crypto assets need to work within those frameworks. And obviously within different parts of the world, there's different frameworks, different legal processes. So yes, there are solutions coming online for this. If you do self-custody your ETH and then for some reason uh, you pass away and then you want to pass that on in, in a way where you're kind of like normie wife in this context can actually access it, you can use those kinds of services. Um, but if you want to maintain like full self-sovereignty, full self-custodial uh, over your own funds, then I guess the simplest way would be to just write her a guide uh, and then make sure that she can actually follow it and know how to access it on her own. So basically test her, say, hey, I want you to do this all on your own. And if she can access it and she knows what to do, then then that's it really. I mean, there's not much else you can do other than that. It's like teaching them how to access it and, and in which way while keeping your own funds still secure. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a, a big problem, I think, right now for, for people. It's not something enough people talk about, but there are definitely solutions being worked on. I don't know the names off the top of my head right now. I'm sure you could Google for them. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the best way right now would probably just be to make sure that you write them a guide and they can follow the guide and get access to it in you know, like a trial run. It's not that hard, really. I mean, depending on how you secure your funds, of course, but I guess if you're doing things like staking it all or putting it somewhere else, how is your wife going to know how to like unwind a Uniswap liquidity position, right? <laughs> or things like that. So that's where things get get complex. And I think that's where these third-party services may be of, of much uh, much more help than just trying to write a guide for her. But, but yeah, unfortunately, I don't have many better solutions than that right now. It's tough to give advice for because every case is uh, unique in of itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think another kind of catch-all advice is like if you have a trusted crypto friend who you know knows how to operate a wallet and, and do all these things, maybe the thing you tell your, your wife or your normie relative that needs to recover your funds uh, is that, hey, go talk to this person. Uh, and if it's a trusted friend, then they can help uh, help you, them out. Uh, and if that, if you're worried about that, that person just like steals the funds. Well, then you get to go to like nation state legal systems because you have one person who was responsible and clearly did the theft. Uh, and so mm -hmm. um, that you just can fall back there. Uh, okay, last question from Let's Go Ride Bikes. Will Ryan ever read the ads? That answer is no, because I am the one with the teleprompter. All right, moving on from <laughs> takes of the week. This is coming from Zachy Mannion out of the Cosmos ecosystem. Interesting take here. I think Cosmos, he says, ha social capital has about 12 months to do something unique and differentiated. Otherwise, we will get swallowed by ETH-flavored variants of Cosmos, originated ideas like roll apps and Eigenlayer. I feel intense urgency. The hour is late. Interesting tweet out of uh, Zachy. What, what, did you see this tweet, uh, Anthony? What was your take? I, I think I did see it. And I think my initial reaction to this was that Zaki is like at least 12 months late on this take. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have been going on about this personally and about Cosmos just not being able to find product market fit for a long time now, uh, probably as early as 2020, I believe. I just never got the value prop. And yeah, I think he's right. I think that the ideas that they've been pushing on, such as kind of like the app chain stuff and and like uh, roll apps, things like that. Like the Ethereum ecosystem is just much better positioned to take those ideas and run with them because it has all the economic uh, kind of like weight there. It has all the money. It 
has all the social capital, it has all the attention. Whereas Cosmos, no one really knows kind of like what Cosmos is is trying to do and what the central hub is because they have this like hub and spoke model. But then Cosmos was kind of like not the hub for a little bit. There was another thing that was like acting as the hub and then people were fighting. There's a lot of infighting in the community. So they don't really seem to have like a shelling point that people can actually like go to and be in the Cosmos ecosystem. Not to say there aren't people, good people working on it and there aren't stuff, there, there aren't interesting things happening there. But yeah, I, I do think that their time is pretty much out. Uh, the L2s are already big. The Eigenlayer has so much hype behind it that I'm very confident it's going to accrue a lot of uh, attention, a lot of attention, a lot of economic capital behind it very quickly. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like he's he's potentially late on this by by at least twelve months. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean he's basically making a big call to action. It's like, yo, Cosmos ecosystem, it's time to get our shit together. Otherwise, we will get mm -hmm. routed around. Um, this uh, next take coming in from Dankrad Feist. He goes, blockchain researcher discovers that value is social. Mind exploding emoji, comma, blames rollups. Uh, and this is coming out of John Charbonneau's uh, article uh, that he uh, dropped. who was like, hey, y'all don't know what a rollup is. Here's what it actually is. And Dankrad says, follow, continues and says, a few people saying this analogy made them more sympathetic to John's argument. I wonder what their model of value was before. Uh, I you think that maths or cryptography somehow store value, you're wrong. They only help a community coordinate. Oh, I thought that was a great take. Like cryptography, you, don't, you can't store value in cryptography. Value is inherently perceived. Uh, and so mm -hmm. this whole like blockchain roll-up debate is like, basically the TLDR is like, from a roll-ups perspective, it's, it's a layer one. Or like optimism mm -hmm. from the optimism perspective is a layer one. It just happens to use Ethereum for data. Uh, and then like, and then it turned into just like this ontology debate about like what's a roll up and what is, what is provenance and all of this stuff. Uh, Anthony, what's your take on uh, Dankrest's take? Yeah, so this was um, a take that was basically, uh, I mean, the whole debate stemmed from this uh, this blog post that John uh, put out around you know, social consensus, basically, and basically and telling people that you don't know how uh, roll-ups work, you know, you've been lied to, blah, blah, blah. It was very bombastic. It was uh, very, I guess, clickbaity. But the essence of his post was that, yeah, it's all social consensus. Now, for people who have been around for a while in this ecosystem, understand that it's all social consensus, no matter what it is, doesn't matter if it's a roll-up or an L1 or an L2 or an asset. It doesn't even matter if it's the ERC-20 token standard, right? Someone used this. I believe Dankrad used this analogy. But ultimately, it is all social consensus at the end of the day. We value things. We use the standards. Like, there's no reason why um, a token has to be an ERC-20. It can be another standard. Like, you can literally fork ERC-20, copy the whole thing, call it ERC-50 or whatever you want to call it, and it'll be the same thing. But the thing is, it relies on people actually giving it value. It relies on the social consensus. Same with like, um, if there's a fork of an L1, for example, the reason why Bitcoin Cash isn't the real Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the real Bitcoin is because it's social consensus. No one believes Bitcoin Cash is the real Bitcoin except a small minority of people, whereas the majority believes Bitcoin is the real Bitcoin. So it's the same is true for L2s. If someone wanted to fork optimism and say, okay, well, this is the real optimism now, and this is the, the, the thing. Well, I mean, no, because the bridge, uh, the optimism bridge is what holds all the value, right? And to, you can't fork that bridge. You can't fork the the um, the value of that bridge. You would have to convince people to use your kind of bridge and for you to be the real optimism. So really, at the end of the day, it is all social consensus. But I think people took issue with John putting this out because they're like, dude, like we know this. Like this isn't a revelation. Um, but at the same time, I can see from John's perspective how he's like, I don't think enough people know this because 
because it is kind of like it, it, like if there's 10 levels of crypto understanding that everything is social consensus is like level 10 right and i don't think most people are at level 10 right that's when you're like seeing so, the matrix yeah exactly so i think john's whole point of of this post was to just outline it for people who may not think like this which i can i can resonate with because i'd like would like more people to understand this but at the same time yeah i, I think it, it annoyed a lot of the the level 10 people that's for sure <laughs> the only uh participation i had in this whole like uh, twitter debate was uh noticing that all these people were debating about the ontology of roll-ups and like man that is some mm -hmm. deep bear market shit if ever i saw it <laughs> yeah this is what we do in bear markets right we just debate like the meanings of words <laughs> <laughs> uh fred arison's take uh apples and this is coming off of the hype of the uh, new apple vision pro uh launch apple's optic id authentication in the Vis vision pro is world coin orb built into a mainstream device so Fred is just saying like, hey, that WorldCoin orb that everyone thinks is super dystopian, well, now Apple's doing it and everyone's cool with it because it's a mainstream advice. Uh, wh mm -hmm. What's your overall like take on the, the whole WorldCoin vibe and whether or not it's like dystopian? I mean, it's all about the marketing at the end of the day. Yeah. The orb is dystopian. The goggles, they're not dystopian, right? <laughs> the goggles, uh, people are used to goggles. They're used to glasses. You know, it's Apple as well. So, so Apple gets right. to, to, to swing their weight around there. But the orb, I mean, come on. Like how many times have we seen like sci-fi movies and stuff right. like that with just the orbs as being- The orbs are always that... bad. <laughs> Whatever the it, orb exactly. is, it's evil. <laughs> exactly. Orbs are always evil. Goggles and glasses, they're, you know, goofy at worst, right? Right. Um, so I think that's the difference here. It's all in the marketing. And I think WorldCoin really kind of screwed up their marketing because they, I think they thought the orb would be something that was good marketing for them, which maybe it was, but maybe it was like uh, that there was too much negativity as well. Not to say that WorldCoin isn't, you know, doing well on their own, right? I think they're, they're doing a lot of great things. I don't have a strong opinion on, on the orb or whatever, but yeah, I think naturally people just say the orb is dystopian goggles are just goofy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a great take all right anthony as we come down to the end of it the uh, last few questions for you is uh what's your bullish on what, what gets you excited these oh, days geez so if you many tell things, me ETH, I mean, dude <laughs> i'm not going to tell you ETH because like that's like table stakes at this point i think what i'm what i'm still most bullish on is the fact that we are executing on the Ethereum roadmap at layer one faster than we ever have been. If you had told me that we were going to get 40 AIP 4844 um, so soon after the you know withdrawal was going live and, and the merge, I, I probably wouldn't have believed you. I would have been like, nah, nah, that's that's way too soon because it's slated for the end of this year, right? As part of the Denkun upgrade. And the fact that, that it is not a minor upgrade, it is a major upgrade and that will actually be felt by end users because typically on layer one, we like to do upgrades that don't really get felt by end users because i mean the whole point of the ethereum layer one roadmap is really just to enhance layer twos which is where the end users sit and also make the layer one just more secure but that's not something end users see but this is a, a very big major end user facing upgrade and the fact that it's coming so quickly uh is extremely bullish and it's coming so quickly because there are so many awesome people working on it, not just from the traditional core devs and researchers, but also from other organizations like Optimism, like Coinbase has been contributing to it, uh, like Arbitrum and all these other teams, they're contributing to it in a really positive way and they're working in harmony together. And it just, yeah, it gets me really bullish just knowing that we can actually ship Ethereum L1 upgrades in a much faster uh, cadence than we have in, in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's always been the thing that has uh, I've noticed over the last like four or five years is it, uh, it, the 
acceleration of protocol development even like mm -hmm. inside of bull markets inside of bear markets it doesn't matter like the the eth developers and and developing ecosystem whether they're core developers or just client teams or or eip proposers or layer two teams everything just seems to be accelerating perpetually uh mm -hmm. and like Definitely. like just like you said with with base now we have a, a big big company entering the fray uh, and so yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Um, and especially when like protocol development actually turns into optionality for apps and bridges and chains, like everything is going to cohere very, very well next bull market. You're going to, you're going to ask me what I'm bullish on, Anthony. Oh, uh, is that what I have to do? Yeah. That's what, that's what your turn is now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what are you bullish on, David? <laughs> oh, thanks for asking me, Anthony. Uh, <laughs> I'm just bullish on like this being the bottom of the United States. Um, Gary Gensler, I think, is at his peak. Uh, he has a court date with Coinbase. Coinbase is not delisting any of the uh, tokens that Gary Gensler said are securities. They're not ending their CBETH program. They're looking forward to their day in court. Uh, and I think everyone in crypto is like, yeah, that's going to be good for us. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm calling the bottom of the United States. Uh, there's been a big <laughs> migration eastwards to Asia. There's a lot of focus on Asia right now because all of these founders and developers are scared shitless to issue a token inside of the United States. I'm calling a bottom on that. So I am no patriot. I, don't, I do not care to wear an American flag, but I'm saying don't paper hand the United States right now because I think it is up only from here. Uh, and that is what I'm bullish on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of feels like that because it's it's so bad that I mean, maybe the only way up is up from here. So yeah, maybe it, it really. It's like eighty dollar ETH, right? <laughs> right? It literally cannot be worse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Coming in uh, to close out this episode, and Anthony, thank you so much. Oh yeah, before we do the meme of the week, uh, Anthony, uh, you just gave us uh, an hour and twelve minutes of content, so we appreciate your time. But if listeners want two and a half, three hours of content every single week from you, where can they go? Just the Daily Gway. Uh, and you can find the links to that uh, at my Twitter profile, uh, Sassel, S-A-S-S-A-L-0-X. Uh, yeah, all the links are there for that. And yeah, as you mentioned, I do about, yeah, three hours of content, you know, the half an hour video every weekday of Ethereum updates. Uh, and I've been doing that for quite a while. Actually, just today recorded the 600th episode of wow. The Refuel. Wow. So that that's a lot of content, right? That's a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, it just, it's fun. Uh, you know, as I said, it's about Ethereum, all about Ethereum. I give a lot of my takes, a lot one of my hot takes on it and there's a really great community people should join as well our daily great discord community uh, very active in there lots of people in there they'll answer all your questions uh, but yeah yeah bankless listener long time bankless listeners will know but if there was a concentric circles of crypto media i would put the core devs and all of the blog posts and announcements and progress that they make. And then I would wrap the daily gray around that. And then I would wrap the bankless around that. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot mm -hmm. of, a lot of what Anthony puts out on the daily gray uh, ultimately just ends up in the uh, bankless weekly rollup content, which is why it's so easy to bring him into uh, the weekly rollup whenever Anthony's down for me, excuse me, whenever Ryan is down for maintenance. <laughs> so Anthony, we always, we always appreciate it. You ready for the uh, meme of the week, Anthony? Yeah, let's do it. This one came, came from uh, Pseudo Theos. I'm sure you saw this one, but this is once again about the uh, roll-up debate. The roll-up debate in one image, which is the, uh, the astronaut shooting the other astronaut. Wait, it's all social consensus? And then the other astronaut says, it always has been. It's always social consensus all the way down, and it always has been. Any comments on this last mm -hmm. uh, meme? 
I mean, it always will be until our AI overlords take over, right? <laughs> but then it's the social consensus of the AI overlords. So yeah, it's always social consensus. <laughs> so, someone's social consensus. Bankless Nation, thank you for sticking with us through the crypto news of the week. It was a big one this week. And of course, Anthony, thank you once again for, for helping me go through the news. Risks and disclaimers, Bankless Nation. Crypto is risky. Bitcoin, Ether is risky. Crypto, they might be crypto securities. You don't know, but you could lose what you put in. We are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.